everyone, Dan Cassidy here. Welcome to the UBS Market Moves podcast channel. So our conversation today will focus on equity investing. We will hit on topics ranging from valuations to earnings to headwinds, and of course, how to think about positioning within the asset class at this time. So let me take a quick moment to introduce our guests joining us here on the podcast today. We do have with us Head of Equities Americas with the UBS Chief Investment Office, David Lefkowitz, as well as Dan Suzuki, Deputy Chief Investment Officer with Richard Bernstein Advisors. And for some quick context, uh, today's conversation is a follow-up to one we all had back in March at this point. So I know a lot has happened in between, a lot to catch up on today. So David, Dan, it's great to be with you both. And thank you for joining us on the podcast and spending some time with our listeners today. Appreciate it. Thanks, Dan. Looking forward to it. Yeah, thanks for having us, Dan. Absolutely. So uh, where to begin? Perhaps we can start with earnings. I know Uh, Dan, we're in the midst of the Q2 reporting season. Uh, Results have been coming in. They've been uh, quite strong, actually, relative to consensus estimates heading in. So I'm curious, Dan, to hear from your vantage point, what factors have been contributing to performance and what have you been hearing from management teams, anything in the way of economic conditions, consumer trends, risks, etc.? What are your thoughts, Dan? Yeah, Dan, I think that, you know, when you talk about performance, I'm assuming you're talking about sort of recent market performance. I think there's been you know, a bit of a divergence between what you're seeing in the markets over the last couple months, which is kind of a, has had a defensive tilt to it uh, relative to, you know, what you're hearing from these companies. So I think what you see uh, this earnings season uh, as we sort of enter the busiest uh, week of earnings season may be similar to what you saw last uh, earnings season around this time, which is, you know, there was a bit of a defensive tilt going to last earnings season, but as you've heard from more and more companies, uh, and, and results were just so much better than expected. At some point, the market had to reprice, you know, the tremendous growth that they were seeing, not just now, but for what that meant for as you compound uh, for further growth. So I think what's been driving, you know, the, the significant earnings beat that you've seen so far uh, has clearly been the cyclicals, right? And that makes sense because if, if this economy is re- recovering and all the economic data is saying that the recovery is happening faster than what people have forecasted, then it makes sense that the companies that are going to benefit from that and that are surprising the most are going to be those cyclical sectors. So, you know, if you think about, you know, the sectors outperforming uh, in terms of relative to expectations, you're seeing, you know, financials, industrials, materials, those are the types of companies that you expect to uh, do well uh, and surprise the upside in in the midst of this economic recovery. So I think it's it's kind of uh, validating uh, you know, the fact that, you know, there are growth concerns out there, but the actual results and then what the companies are actually telling us is that the recovery is intact. Thank you for that, Dan. I know we're going to hit on risks a bit more in a few moments. So, David, curious to hear your thoughts on earnings. I know on July 26th, you had authored a blog on earnings strength, which, by the way, is available for our listeners, our clients on UBS.com forward slash CIO. Although, David, curious to hear your thoughts on how this earnings season has been playing out, as well as your expectations for earnings growth in coming quarters. Yeah, I, I mean, I think Dan Suzuki stated it very well. I, I mean, we've just seen you know, really tremendous results coming through. Um, and, it, you know, the drivers from a sort of big picture perspective are, you know, shouldn't be surprising to anybody. I, I mean, the vaccines have been very effective in terms of uh, easing and easing of the pandemic. And, um, you know, we're seeing, we're seeing case counts rise, you know, a, a bit here in the U S uh, because of the new variants, but 
you know, just given the, the amount of protection that society has from the vaccines at this point, you know, I, I, I don't think we're going to see much in the way of a, uh, of a, of a sliding in, in terms of economic activity. I, I, I think um, it's going to continue. We're going to continue to see the economy uh, recover and, and move forward. So, you know, the, the easing of the pandemic from a big picture perspective, I mean, that, that's clearly unleashing a huge amount of pent up demand, you know, thank, thanks to the, the very large fiscal stimulus that, uh, that had been deployed into the economy. And, uh, and as a result, you know, what we're seeing is, is businesses are now responding to that, that very elevated level of demand and they're ramping up their own investment spending, whether that be in terms of hiring workers or if it's in terms of investing in plant and equipment. And, uh, that's, you know, clearly coming through in the numbers. And, and just to, just to underscore how, how strong things are, you know, revenues in the quarter are up more than 20% uh, from the second quarter of 2020. Now, you know, 2020 uh, results were kind of depressed, right, during the middle of the pandemic. But what's really interesting is that revenues are actually 10% higher than where they were in 2019, uh, the second quarter of 2019. So, I mean, we're, we're seeing some genuine strength. It's not just easy comparisons. Uh, companies are you know, really reporting record types of, of earnings results, uh, and that's due to the uh, you know, just the, the recovery from the pandemic and, and the fiscal stimulus that's been deployed to the economy. And I would say one other point. I mean, so far, we're not seeing any slackening of demand at this point due to the, the recent rise in cases. And, and, and I'd be watching the airlines here because you know, those are probably the most sensitive parts of the economy to, uh, to the pandemic itself. And airline management teams are saying, you know, everything remains, uh, the recovery remains intact and, and the uh, they're not seeing any fall off in terms of uh, in terms of bookings. Dan, anything there you'd like to add on earnings as well as expectations for growth through the balance of 2021 into 2022? You know, the only thing I'd add in terms of the you know the growth outlook is that uh, you know clearly you know what people are worried about is there's a sense of this peak growth and and you know second quarter is probably the peak in terms of this year to year growth numbers, uh, but when you look at the underlying growth. Uh, that we're going to see over the next couple of years, uh, I think there's so much runway in this recovery uh, from the pandemic, especially outside the U.S., that you're going to see, you know, this continued uplift. Uh, and, and that, to me, suggests that you're going to see both the 2021 numbers and the 2022 numbers, you know, come in, you know, better than people expect. So, you know, there's always a bit of a, a, a drift when you're talking about next year's earnings numbers because they always start off too high. But I would expect that, you know, relative to a normal, you know, downward drift, you're going to see, you know, both 2021 and 22 surprised to the upside uh, as, as, as over time. So I think that's very positive uh, and has been positive historically for the overall market. So, Dan, with that earnings, that economic picture now in mind, I'm curious also to hear your thoughts on valuations where those currently stand, uh, perhaps stretched in some areas, and maybe your outlook as well for U.S. equity market performance over the next 6 to 12-month period. Sure, sure. So, Dan, you know, one of the things that we've actually recent, recently been highlighting in RBA is that we think that this is we've now reached the point in the cycle where we can actually definitively say that we're in a bubble you know people have been talking about bubble for a long time because asset valuations have been high 
But I think that, you know, at RPA, we've always had sort of this basic criteria for defining a bubble. And valuations is actually not the components because they're an obvious, you know, prerequisite for a bubble. But when you look at, you know, those the bubbles historically, the big ones, they've had a few things in common with each other. And those things are increased liquidity, increased use of leverage, democratization of the market, increased new issues, and increased turnover. And I think as you, as you digest each of those, you know, it, you quickly realize that not only uh, can you say that there, we, we meet those criteria, but in many of those cases, we're off the charts. Like if you're talking about liquidity as an example, you know, that chart literally went off the charts, uh, you know, through the stimulus uh, during the pandemic. But that liquidity is still, still very high. Uh, and a lot of that is trapped within the financial system. Um, obviously, we're seeing huge uses of leverage, uh, both in tradition, uh, traditional sense, but also uh, with respect to options. Uh, you know, call option buying, especially by retail investors, has been quite high. And just retail overall, I mean, there's a, there's a big uh, retail, uh, you know, online broker that's going public this week. I mean, it, you're sort of piling on themes on themes here, you know. So whether you look at SPAC issues or, you know, increased trading turnover, especially within retail, to me, it's, 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 there's no question about each of these five, five criteria, uh, you know, being, you know, triggered essentially, which is essentially telling you that there's a bubble in the market. Now, what I, what I, the only thing I'd say there though is that it's not a uniform bubble. And you kind of alluded to that, that certain pockets are clearly, uh, more extreme in terms of valuations, in terms of sentiment, in terms of crowding. So, you know, we think of the market as a seesaw, and, and, and you know, everybody's moved to one side of the seesaw, which is essentially, from one perspective, it's, it's, it's duration, you know, so, you know, basically anything that benefits from low interest rates, um, and then piling on top of that, it's, it's U.S. large cap growth. And so we're trying to, to steer, you know, the ship away from those areas that pose the biggest risks. And when you do that, you know, a lot of these areas actually look, you know, pretty attractive, uh, you know, relative to everything else out there uh, from a valuation perspective, from a earnings perspective. So we think that there are huge risks and valuation is one of those risks, but it's not a uniform market. And I think I mentioned this last time, you know, just as an example, if you think about the tech bubble, which was a different bubble, uh, you know, 2000, 2001, over that two year period, you know, while the tech bubble was collapsing, tech stocks were down like 50, 60 percent. Uh, the overall S&P was down 20 percent. U.S. small cap value stocks, as an example, you know, were up 40 percent on it. You know, that's not a relative number. They were up 40 percent on an absolute basis. Right. So that's, again, another example of tilting to the other side of the seesaw. And that's exactly what we've been doing. There's a lot there to follow up on. We can break out risks a bit further. We can get into positioning in just a few moments. Though, David, I'm curious to hear your thoughts in terms of evaluations. Any pockets look stretched at the moment? And what is your outlook for performance, equity market performance, over that 6 to 12-month period currently? Sure. Thanks, Dan. Um yeah, so just you know, in terms of our, our view on markets, I, I think there's more to go in this rally. I mean, obviously, it's been a very powerful rally off the the bottom in in March of 2020. Um, but as we look at what the drivers are, we think they're still they're still intact and 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 likely to to lead to to some further upside. So. You know, the, first and foremost, it, we still have a, a just a very strong economic. Uh, backdrop. Uh, consumers are 
flush with cash. We were, I was kind of alluding to that earlier. Uh, you know, savings rates have, have been very high due, due to the pandemic. There's been a lot of deferred spending on top of the fact that, uh, all the, the fiscal uh, stimulus and, and the, the payments that have been dispersed by the government, the consumers are, are just sitting on a lot of, a lot of capital right now. And as a result, that's that's dry powder for the the economy to continue to expand, and we think it will do so. Um, you know, also, you know, similarly on the on the corporate side, businesses are are still trying to rebuild their inventories. They're trying to expand capacity to uh, to catch up and and to catch up with demand. So, yeah. You know, just bottom line, I just think that this is very strong economic. Uh, as a result, we're likely going to see continued very strong corporate profit growth, uh, not only this year, but into next year as well. And, and that will likely lead to further equity market gains. Uh, I would also point out that, you know, the Fed is, is, is probably one of the other critical variables here. And the Fed is, is likely to remain you know, still quite accommodative for 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 some time, and uh, you know the inflation. They've been very clear that they think inflation will be transitory, so they're not going to be tightening policy in a way that would derail the recovery anytime soon. So, you know, that being said, look, I mean, valuations are are certainly higher than than they have been historically. Um, you know, in our in our thinking, valuations though don't or don't really have a very good predictive power in terms of returns over the next 12 months. Um, they, they just don't work very well in terms of uh, trying to, you know, just in terms of uh, uh, predicting returns. There's just very little correlation. But they are much more powerful when we look out over, say, a longer-term horizon. And, you know, over the next decade, it, it's probably probably likely that, Large cap equities are are going to produce subpar returns. I mean, something in the five percentish type of range over the next ten years seems pretty reasonable. That that's a lot lower than what stocks usually do. Um, about half as low as what they usually do. But I think I think the way you know the way we think about valuations are that it, it doesn't play a huge role in the short term. What's more important are are going to be just the business cycle, earnings revisions, earning momentum, that kind of stuff. And that all points to further gains over the next, over the next 12 months or so. And, and that's, that is, uh, that's, uh, that's why we think we'll see uh, markets continue to move higher. David, as a follow-up, what factors or risks could derail or deflate that momentum in equity markets, but also the recovery, the economic recovery here in the U.S.? Yeah, I would say, I mean, first and foremost, the pandemic. I mean, the, the last 18 months has clearly been all about the pandemic. And, you know, if, God forbid, if, if something, you know, really goes south with the pandemic in terms of you know, new variants that, uh, that we, you know, we can't control as easily as, as we are controlling uh, them today. I mean, that, that would definitely be a concern. I, I think on the other side, so that would be sort of a growth, you know, that would, that would be a, a growth slowdown. Sort of on the other side, you know, the other risk would be that that inflation continues to run hot and doesn't cool off as both the markets and 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 the Fed and and we are expecting. Um, if the inflation remains remains sort of higher than than what than what the market's expecting, 
that that could prompt the Fed to start to tighten policy much faster and much sooner than markets are expecting. So that that could be problematic. Don't think that's a very high likelihood, but um, something to bear in mind. And then I think I think the thing that's probably the the the, the biggest question in in my mind at this point is what you know what what does sort of this post boom economy look like? Right. We were just talking about how there's a lot of pent up demand. Consumers are in great shape. Businesses are, are, are scrambling to keep up. I mean, at some point, we're going to see a better match of supply and demand. Businesses will catch up with the demand and, and demand may, may actually moderate a bit uh, as the fiscal stimulus b- begins to wear off. You know, are we going to be what's the economy going to look like at that point? And. I think that's more of a question for, you know, say the end of you know, beyond 12 months from now, maybe the end of 22. Uh, but will, you know, will businesses be able to manage inventories properly? Are they going to uh, over invest in inventories and have too much uh, on hand at some point? It, it's something I don't think we know the, the precise answer to yet, but that, that's also a potential risk that we're, that we'll be watching closely, especially as we as we get into 2022. Well, that is an interesting point, David, because near term, at least, there really is no precedent to gauge what the other side of this pandemic period might look like in that context. So thank you for hitting on some of those risk considerations. Uh, what about, Dan, what's on your radar in terms of risk factors that could derail or deflate any momentum in the economic recovery or equity market performance? Yeah, uh, Dan, I would say that, you know, you can look at this a couple different ways. I think when you look at it from uh, an equity market performance perspective, you know, I think that, you know, just think about overall portfolios, the two biggest risks I think that people need to be at least, you know, cognizant of and, and aware of are, you know, probably, you know, those elevated valuations that we talked about earlier uh, and, and, and interest rates, right? You know, interest rates have clearly been coming down. You know, real interest rates recently hit a record low. But I think that, you know, as we look out over the next, you know, six to 12 months, I think the, the, the likelihood uh, of lower rates from here, it, it seems almost unfathomable. We think it's, it's much more likely that you're going to see, you know, higher rates from here. So making sure that portfolios are, are set up to withstand that. Uh, and, and there are going to be winners and losers, you know, not just not just within the bond market, but also within within the stock market. I kind of alluded to earlier, you know, this bubble in low du- in duration, uh, long duration assets, you know, long duration assets in the equity market are essentially, uh, you know, the high growth expensive uh, stocks. Right. So I think that, you know, thinking about from a portfolio perspective, you know, what rates do and, and looking at these valuations, those are the two biggest risks. Now, from the first thing you mentioned, though, was sort of this economic recovery and, and what could derail the recovery. I think that, um, to me, you know, looking over the next six to 12 months, the, the recovery looks pretty solid. You know, th- there's doesn't seem like there's a whole lot that's going to cause, you know, what I would be more worried about, which is sort of like a, a, a real profits collapse or profits recession. I, I just don't see that in the cards over the next six to 12 months. But, you know, on the margin, you know, as David mentioned, you know, people are going to read through to any sort of tighter than expected or more hawkish uh, Fed uh, commentary of faster than expected. You know, tapering will will precipitate people to expect faster than expected. Uh, you know, raise, raising of interest rates and things like that. I think that's unlikely. Um, but you know, people are the market's going to read through a lot more 
uh, from little moves in Fed commentary, uh, you know, they probably warranted. So you could see some volatility around that. And then around, um, you know, growth, I think that you need to keep an eye on stimulus. You know, right now there's kind of a push-pull dynamic between, you know, the benefits, uh, unemployment benefits expiring and the new child tax uh, credit checks going out, right? So there's there's a bit of a push-pull, but on the margin, you know, I would say the fiscal stimulus is slowing. And when you look outside the U.S., it could actually be slowing, you know, faster in some regions. So you need to be conscious of that as a potential source of slowdown. And then to the extent that, you know, people start talking about taxes again, you know, higher taxes, you know, the, the market's clearly going to, you know, read that as a, a, a growth negative, despite sort of the, the offsetting infrastructure potential. So, you know, those are the risks. But again, you know, bottom line, six to 12 months, uh, I think that the recovery is pretty intact. Okay, so no shortage of risks. So, Dan, David, at this point, now that we have a better sense for your respective outlooks, as well as the risk considerations on your radars to be mindful of, a good closing point as we're nearing the end here, maybe we can dive into some asset allocation, some portfolio positioning guidance to wrap up the segments. Uh, David will provide our guest, Dan Suzuki, with the final word. So, David, I'll ask you, given the current trajectory of the U.S. economy, uh, coupled with those risk considerations you had shared with us just a few moments ago, how should investors think about positioning within equities at this time? Yeah, thanks, Dan. So, yeah, look, I, I think um, what looks the most interesting to us at this point is favoring some of the the more value and more cyclical sectors within the equity market. I mean, recently we've seen these segments of the market have underperformed a bit. Um, and I think that's been most likely due to the fact that the Delta variant is is on the rise and that there might be some questions about uh, about the pandemic itself and the sustainability of economic growth. Ultimately, we think uh, that we'll be able to get through this. I think it's pretty interesting that seeing in the UK already, it looks like cases are beginning to decline. I think it's a pretty interesting data point. Uh, and then we've also seen a more hawkish tilt from the Fed just over the last uh, five or six weeks. Um, so that, that has sort of prompted a rotation in our view into, you know, into some of the more, into some of the more growthier parts of the market, the more secular growth parts, which, which to, to Dan's point are, are very expensive at this point. So we think as we get more clarity on the Delta variant, as we, uh, as we don't think the Fed is going to be incrementally more hawkish from here. In fact, they probably are going to be uh, you know, really very clearly more dovish. In other words, you know, keeping monetary policy very accommodative for a long time, we think that will prompt a, a rotation back into some of those more cyclical areas. Um, and, and just and just when you have very strong economic growth, it's the cyclicals that tend to benefit most from an earnings growth perspective. They're, by definition, you know, more tied to the economy and therefore should disproportionately benefit from the strong economic growth outlook that we have. So, so from a sector perspective, we, we continue to like financials, energy, industrials, as well as consumer discretionary, and then uh, value stocks, overgrowth stocks. And we would also highlight that we have a, a preference for mid caps as well. Anything outside of the U.S., David, that looks attractive to you at this time? Yeah, so we, we do have a preference for emerging markets. I mean, it, it's, it's a lot of the same drivers that, that I just described that that influence our thinking in terms of how to be positioned within the U.S. Uh, but, you know, strong global growth. I mean, it's not just a U.S. growth story. It's really a global growth story. And, 
emerging markets tend to be some of the more cyclical components of the global equity market. Uh, we're also seeing improving vaccination rates, uh, which have been lagging behind the U.S. That those are beginning to catch up. Um, you know, still accommodative monetary policy. So, and I think more recently, you know, there's been a lot of concerns around around some of the regulatory issues in China. You know, we think we think a lot of those have been. We think a lot of those fears are are now uh, somewhat overblown, and and, and some of these. Some of these stocks are looking, you know, fairly attractive. Um, it, it may take some time for the dust to settle and and for, uh, you know, for those stocks to to gain their footing. But we don't think at this point it's going to be an incremental negative going forward. So, uh, so just given the the economic backdrop, I still think that it, emerging markets look look interesting here, especially after they've derated a bit over the last couple of months. Great. Well, David, thank you for walking us through your preferences and your current thinking when it comes to allocation at this time. Uh, Dan, as we begin to wrap up, what, what's your current thinking in terms of positioning within equities? And is there anything outside of the U.S. that looks attractive from your vantage point? Yeah, absolutely. So I, I would say that our part our portfolios are, are uh, you know, a great reflection of, you know, all the themes that both both myself and David have been talking about and what David just outlined. Uh, so I, I would very much agree, uh, you know, with his take, take on where the opportunities and the risks lie. So, you know, when we look at it, you know, we want to basically own the most likely sources of earnings upside. And to us, you know, given that global recovery backdrop that David mentioned, you know, that's going to lie squarely in the camp of cyclicals, uh, which is also a value trade because, you know, that those parts of the market are cheap today. Uh, and so we want to own those, you know, the value trade, the cyclical trade, uh, the small cap trade, because those are the areas that are going to benefit a lot uh, from the current, you know, recovery, not just the current recovery backdrop, but also sort of this, this inflationary backdrop that we're seeing. Uh, so we want to own those areas, um, and we want to avoid, you know, every any part of the market that's being propped up by sort of the bubble that I was describing earlier. And so I think in order to do that, because the the valuations have become so high, valuations have become so pervasive in overall financial assets. You know, you need to start. You know, I think U.S. investors in particular need to start thinking outside the box. You know, both from a regional perspective. Uh, you know, we were actually underweight the U.S. Uh, for the first time in our history uh, this year. Uh, and, and I think that reflects sort of that relative opportunity. If you, the more you go away, if you were to just stack up every investment out there and, you know, rank them in terms of valuations, you know, the further away you get from U.S. large cap growth, uh, the cheaper things get. Uh, and I think that people need to consider that when they're when they're sort of you know uh, putting together their portfolio, uh, but not just from a regional perspective. We think that we would agree that emerging markets, uh, ex China is a big has been a big uh, you know focus for for us recently, uh, but also from a from an asset class perspective. You know, not only do we think uh, emerging market equities outside of China are attractive, but emerging market high yield uh, on the credit side is actually attractive to us. Um, you know, people, nobody seems to realize that default rates are actually lower in emerging market high yield than they are in U.S. high yield. Um, yet you're getting more than a percentage point of extra yield uh, out of those securities, right? So I think that, you know, be, given how pervasive, you know, these high valuations and elevated expectations are, people just need to be a little bit more uh, open to sort of 
looking outside the uh, their traditional uh, you know spectrum of, of where they tend to focus. So the bottom line, uh, I completely agree with David. Uh, s- smaller cap, cyclical, you know, cheaper investments is probably is probably going to be best serve investors over the next six months. Well, Dan, David, thank you very much for joining us here on the podcast today for covering all of the ground that you have with our listeners. Very productive, wide-ranging conversation and a lot of takeaways here, valuable. So thank you very much for joining us and I look forward at some point we'd like to pick up the conversation with you both, but appreciate your time and insights today. Absolutely. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Thanks. Thanks a lot, Dan. Absolutely. And again, today we've been joined by Head of Equities Americas with the UBS Chief Investment Office, David Lefkowitz, as well as Dan Suzuki, Deputy Chief Investment Officer with Richard Bernstein Advisors. So the UBS Market Moves podcast channel is available where podcasts are found, including on iTunes, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, and Pandora. Visit UBS.com forward slash podcasts to view the entire podcast offering. From UBS Studios, I'm Dan Cassidy. Thank you for joining us. UBS Chief Investment Office's investment views are prepared and published by the Global Wealth Management Business of UBS AG or its affiliates. The views and opinions expressed in this material by external guest speakers are those of the author, speaker, and are not those of UBS, its subsidiaries, or affiliates. Accordingly, UBS does not accept any liability over the content of this material or any claims, losses, or damages arising from the use or reliance of all or any part thereof. This material has no regard to the specific investment objectives, financial situation, or particular needs of any specific recipient, and is published for informational purposes only. For a full legal disclaimer applicable to the independent investment views produced by UBS, please visit our website at ubs.com forward slash CIO disclaimer.